And so I want to read God's word for us this morning. We are currently in the book of Exodus. We're going to look at two passages from Exodus 7 and Exodus 10, and then AK is going to come, and we're going to consider God's word together. So let's read God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch. I am about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. And the fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there will be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not move from where they were. Yet all of the Israelites had light where they lived. Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your families may go with you. Only your flocks and herds must stay behind. Moses responded, You must, let, you must also let us have the sacrifices and burnt offerings to prepare for the Lord our God. Even our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind because we will take some of them to worship the Lord our God. We will not know what we will use to worship the Lord until we get there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. Pharaoh said to him, leave me. Make sure you never see my face again, for on that day you see my face, you will die. As you have said, Moses replied, I will never see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gordon. Hey, good morning. As Gordon said, I am, uh, I'm AK Andrew King, the pastor of Youth and Family Ministry here at Hope. And from time to time, I do get to preach and I get to do that this morning. So it's a gift uh, to stand in front of you and a humbling thing as well. So, um, but let me, I, I wanna pray for us before we, we dive in and look at God's word together. So let me do that. Um, Father, thank you for the gift of this morning. Um, I do pray that um, just as we lost an hour, I'm sure many people in this room are coming in tired, myself included. I pray that you could give us um, just hearts that could rest in you. Would you um, calm us? Um, I pray that the anxieties we, we've been carrying all week, the anxieties we bring into this room, that you would put those at bay um, for a moment and that we could hear and be encouraged um, by who you are, by your power, by your mercy, by your grace. And I pray, Father, that this morning we would be in awe of who you are. And I pray that your mercy would, as that song said, that it would be where all our hopes begin. And I pray that that would reign true for us this morning. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So as Gordon said, we're continuing in the book of Exodus, and we've been specifically looking at 
the life of Moses and how God redeems through weakness. We've seen how God has been directing the story of Moses to be the one to help the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery from the Egyptians, from Pharaoh. And we see that he was born a Hebrew, placed in in the Nile River. He was rescued. Um, He was raised by Egyptian royalty. He's well-versed in Egyptian culture. In many ways, he is the perfect one to rescue Israel. But yet we have seen that he is far from perfect. He's a murderer, a runner, a doubter. And he denies or even is reluctant to believe uh, God's true call on his life. But here this morning, we kind of, there's this shift in the narrative starting in chapter five. And it's as if Moses has just, um, something's changed in him. And we just see his faithfulness as he and Aaron go to Pharaoh and again and again go to him with, I would imagine, what would be feel like this impossible task requesting him to let the Israelites go. And this is a huge chunk of, of, of scripture that we're looking at. And we, we were in chapter four last week. We jumped from, um, really, we're looking at chapters uh, five through 10. Um, so it's a big chunk of scripture. But I, I think we can condense that down and really find this thread that runs throughout really all, all the plagues that we're looking at today. And it's that God is powerful. He's the one in control and he will rescue his people. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Sandlot. Um, I grew up playing baseball. I always loved that part of the movie, but as I've grown older, the, the part that I love, uh, or the, the parts of the story, the, that movie that I love, is the story of friendship, of adventure, of tall tales, and some of the best one-liners of all time. One of the main parts of the story is when the new kid Smalls, he knocks his dad's baseball signed by the great Bambino over the fence into the yard where the legendary beast lives. The rule that the kids live by is that when something goes over the fence, it becomes property of the beast. Squints, one of the main characters, he describes the beast in this way, this junkyard dog that grew big and grows mean so that he could protect the junkyard with only one thing in his, on his mind, to kill everyone that broke in. He goes on and he says, and it added up to about 120, 173 guys. And so the story continues. The kids are filled with fear and no one is willing to jump over the fence because they know that if they do, the beast will get them. But as the story comes to an end, we see with the guts of Benny the Jet Rodriguez that at the end, it's just really a big dog that ends up licking him in the face and they get the ball back. And it was really just this tall tale. And the reason I share that and why it came to mind is because I feel like we've done the opposite with this story. I think in many ways, this is a true and legendary tale of what God does to rescue his people out of Egypt. But I think we've, we've kind of sanitized it. We're no longer awestruck or shocked by what God has done and is capable of doing. We make it into a story that we can wrap our heads around. We make it into uh, a manageable 
um, category uh, that we can kind of place God inside this, this box that we can contain. We make him into our image in a sense, giving him a little more strength than the strongest thing or the most powerful thing that we can imagine. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon kind of gets at what I'm talking about. He explains the, the power of God in this way. He says, this power I must not forget to say as a gathering up of the whole is infinite. Power in the creature must have a limit for the creature itself is finite. But power in the creator has neither measure nor bound. I am sure, beloved, we treat our God often as though he were like ourselves. We sit down after one defeat or disappointment and we say we will never try again. We suppose the work allotted to us to be impossible of performance. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why limit the Holy One of Israel? So this, this narrative of these true events gives us a God that is all-powerful. He's outside what we can comprehend and make sense of. He, control, he controls creation, water, animals, bugs, disease, weather, the sun. And we get this behind-the-curtain view of what God is capable of. And we see not this mere man behind the curtain like in the Wizard of Oz. We see that he is all-powerful. And there's nothing that can compete with his power. The story serves the Israelites and us to remind us who he is. In many ways, so much of scripture goes back to this point of when God rescued his people. Even later in Exodus, when we receive, uh, when the Israelites receive the Ten Commandments, what God first says to Moses is, remember who I am. Remember, I am the one who brought you out of slavery. And this is the beginning of that story that we're seeing of God using judgment and plagues to save and rescue his people. So to help us get further into this passage, um, I want to start by, by looking at Exodus 5. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh what the Lord would like for them to do. The Lord wants Pharaoh to let the Israelites go so that they can worship him. And in responding to them, what Pharaoh says is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And Pharaoh saying this, he's not saying that he does not believe in God. He's not an atheist. Rather, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had a plurality of gods. They worshiped many gods. And what he is asking here is, why should I listen to your God? It's a question about authority. I think one commentator helped explain this. He says, authority is tied to the identity of the person making a command. We obey when we recognize a higher authority. We obey gladly when we recognize a higher, trustworthy, and good authority. See, Pharaoh does not see the Lord as a higher authority trustworthy or good, he he's just simply disregards their request and refuses to let the Israelites go. And rather than showing him the mercy, the Israelites' mercy, he further oppresses them by taking away the straw, making the process of making bricks that much more difficult. But here we see God's faithfulness continue to step in as he is faithful to his oppressed people. He unleashes judgment on Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. 
the Lord gives instruction to Moses and Aaron to give this message to Pharaoh and picking up the passage that Gordon read in chapter 7 of Exodus, um, starting in verse 16, it says, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch, I'm about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. This is a little bit strange. See, what the Lord is doing is he's unleashing his power on Pharaoh and the land of Egypt so that they would know who he is. And there's a uniqueness to the way that the plagues unfold. Each of the plagues is executed with great tact and purpose. We don't have time to unpack every single plague, but I believe that we can see God's hand and what he's doing most clearly in this first plague and then the ninth plague that we'll look at. See, the first plague, when the water in the Nile turned into blood, this cuts off the very life source for the, Egyptian, for the Egyptians. It was the natural resource that helped Egypt to thrive and be the powerhouse nation that they were. It was where they got their food, their water to drink, what they watered their crops with. And the Nile wasn't just seen as this river, it was actually worshipped as a god. It was seen as the God of fertility, praised for the way that it would flood areas around the river, leaving behind sediment, making the soil rich and fertile for producing crops. So there was great intentionality with what, with God turning this river into blood. He's able to manipulate water, and he has power over this powerful and life-giving river. Then we see in the ninth plague as well, when Egypt goes dark for three days, we see another connection with the Egyptian gods. The sun was considered a solar deity named Ra. He was considered one of the greatest gods, and what they, what they pictured was that he was a god that would ride his barge across the heavens throughout the day, lighting up the earth below. And in the evening, he would sink down into the underworld overcome the darkness, overcome Hades, and rise the next day, showing off his power. And the way that the darkness is described is is, uh, the land of Egypt goes dark for three days. It's described as a darkness that you could feel. In the Hebrew, it says that it was dark darkness. So it's like absolute darkness. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave But one of the things we would do, um, or I did growing up, was I would go caving at least once or twice a year, and we would get down into the cave, and then we would turn off our headlamps. And even after giving like a moment or two for your eyes to adjust, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And that's what I imagine this darkness feeling like. And what's, what's going on, too, is we're told that we're the Israelites, they have light. So this is just something that the Egyptians are experiencing. And I would imagine this would have been completely disorienting. And see, with all of the plagues, God is exercising his dominion over creation, belittling the Egyptian God, showing Pharaoh and the world his power. There is no one like him. He is uniquely different, more powerful 
than what we can comprehend. His power is greater than creation. He is the Lord of creation, the one and only true God. And throughout the plagues, Pharaoh's heart is center stage. In Hebrew, the the heart represented the core of the person. There was no word for mind. And so not only was it the place where emotions were experienced, but the word also includes like how we know things and how we make decisions. And this was true in ancient Egypt culture as well. The, The heart was actually considered the most important part of the human being. And for Pharaoh, he himself was seen and worshiped as a god and his heart was believed to be a sovereign and controlling force. And throughout this, this narrative that we're looking at, Pharaoh's heart is described as both um, being hardened by God and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. One of the words that's actually used to describe Pharaoh's heart that we don't see translated is heavy. And what that means in, in the Egyptian culture is when someone would die, they would actually, they believed that the person's heart would be weighed, or yeah, it would be weighed, and if it was considered to be heavy and weighed down, it was considered to be guilty. So part of what, what's going on here in the brilliance of how Moses wrote this narrative is it's saying that not only was his heart hardened, it was guilty. So in one sense, kind of jumping back in, the text is telling us that God is the one that's causing Pharaoh's heart to be hard. And I think this is in line with the overall theme of what we've been talking about. God is revealing his power throughout these plagues. And as Pharaoh being seen as this powerful and sovereign God, it's saying God had power over him as well. Yet it's also Pharaoh's own doing. He is the one that's hardening his own heart. So we kind of come to this difficulty a little bit of like, okay, God is sovereign and in control, but there's also human responsibility. And I think this is a great passage where we see those two things riding on the same track side by side. So God is in complete control, yet Pharaoh is completely responsible for his actions um, and the hardening of his own heart. I do want to talk a little bit about that phrase, hard heart. I think it's something that can be thrown around in in like our Christian circles from time to time that when we see someone captivated by sin or maybe not receptive to the gospel, we say that they have a hard heart or we pray for someone to, um, for their heart to soften. I know that's something I pray for often as I just see the hardness in my own heart. Um, my struggle with anger or whatever that looks like. And so I have to come to the Lord continually to be the one that softens my own heart. And I think a helpful way of understanding the heart is worship. And when we worship something other than God, our hearts uh, get redirected and they become hardened. And one of the, uh, this is a, Um, a commencement speech that I've gone back to time and time again by David Foster Wallace that he's helped me to understand uh, worship in a different way. Um, In the start, or kind of, it's really towards the end, and I would say if you've never read, uh, read his commencement speech, it's well worth your time. It's called This is Water. And towards the end, he says, there is actually no such thing as atheism. And he's a non-believer. And then he goes on to insightly insightfully identify some of the idols of our own heart. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. 
everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If we worship money and things, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And then, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're our default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. I read that because I think what David Foster Wallace is getting at is this slow process of our hearts hardening. The the things that we give our hearts and times to, our time to, that's what shapes us. That's what shapes our hearts. I think a a good illustration um, for this uh, is a, a TV show, Ted Lasso, third season coming out this Wednesday. So I feel like it's appropriate to talk about. Um, but um, one of the main characters in one of my favorite stories, especially in the, in the first season, is the story of Nate and Ted Lasso. And we see this, this beautiful story of this guy that's at the beginning of when we're introduced to him, he's just surprised when people in, like, even know his name. When Ted Lasso sees him for the first time, he calls him by name and he remembers his name and he's like, what, me? He's surprised by it. And what we see happen throughout the first season is he's invited in, Nate is invited into this inner circle, and then eventually, you've had plenty of time to watch it, so I'm, I'm gonna spoil something. Um, he's invited in to be a coach, and then the second season picks up, and what we see is this total downfall of, of Nate. We see him taste some success, and we see his pride start to flare up, and when people don't respect him the way that he desires, he puffs up with anger, and pride, and he really just turns into this villain. And we see this process of his heart hardening. I'm, I'm really kind of wondering what's going to happen as three, season three unfolds. And feel free, you can give Gordon um, a lot of, like, just pester him that he should watch it because he's never seen Ted Lasso. Um, but to uh, another analogy, I would say, or, or I think a character that, that plays this out is, is Malfoy from Harry Potter. And one of the things I think that's beautiful about that story is we actually see his heart soften after Harry Potter rescues him. And so it's this mercy from Harry Potter that changes his heart. But now thinking about our own hearts, aren't our hearts just like that? They are shaped by what we worship. When we give our hearts and we essentially our allegiance to anything other than God, it can undo us. And if something does not change our heart, it ends up destroying us. I'm sure you can probably think of times where you've experienced that or maybe even someone comes to mind. And so jumping back into the narrative, um, 
I think one thing that, that I wrestled through this week is, is God's wrath. We, we see that's ultimately God unleashing judgment on uh, the Egyptians. We're seeing his wrath, but we also see his mercy. I think if we're not careful and just reading through it, we'll miss it. I want to read a, a, a section that's right, uh, right before the seventh plague. Um, in chapter 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time, I am about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me on the earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. But those who didn't take heart, the Lord's word left their servants and livestock in the field. This is specifically talking about when God is going to send hail like that had never been experienced. And here I think we see the key to all of the plagues. God could have obliterated them from the earth, yet he does show mercy. He takes his time showing them his power, showing them that he making his name known on all the earth, that there is no one like him. And we see that some of the Egyptians actually listen and take to heart and put their cattle up. And so what we see with the people that disregards, disregard God's word is that they, um, they immediately receive the outcome of God's wrath of hail raining down. And so how do we make sense of God's wrath in this story? I think it can be an overwhelming reality for us uh, to wrestle with. I think it can be overwhelming for me to stand up here and try to explain. And I think it, it's wise for us um, to, to name that this is it's a difficult thing to wrestle with, um, and I, I want to encourage you guys to wrestle with this text. I want to encourage you to ask those hard questions. I think it's also wise for us to name the mystery of this passage too, that, that why does God choose to harden uh, Pharaoh's heart? Why does he choose to save and rescue his people? Yet, I think whenever we're faced with any complex theological issue, it's always wise for us to return to scripture and allow it to be our guide. I think we see this incredible commentary on this story in the book of Romans in the first chapter where Paul writes, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. 
As a result, people were without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so their bodies were degraded among themselves, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. See, one of the things that Paul is doing is explaining the story of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. God reveals his power and might to them. And there are times where it seems like Pharaoh relents. He he seems to almost repent. Um, Yet he's, ultimately, he suppresses the truth and he never worships God or shows him any gratitude at all. And ultimately, God delivers him over into his desires, to the desires of his own heart. In many ways, it's a tragedy. So many commentators observe the plagues as being um, this undoing of creation. Instead of there being order in life like we read about in Genesis 1, God speaking light and life into existence, we see the opposite. We see chaos. And that's where we are left without God. We're left with this undoing of creation and ultimately death. And the plagues in many ways, they give us this foretaste of what the final judgment will look like that we can read about in Revelation 16 where God describes uh, these judgments and ultimately there are these plagues that are intensified. So it's intensification of the plagues that we read about in Exodus. And so I wanna ask the question, where does that leave us? Where do we turn for hope? See, one of the awe-striking and overwhelming realities of the gospel is that God, the creator of the world, and all his power and might becomes a man. Jesus, the son of God, he comes down into the chaos, into the broken world, this broken world, to rescue humanity. He does not leave us alone. He enters our story and he, defe- and he defeats death. In his time on earth, we see Jesus restoring creation, giving sight to the blind, enabling the paralyzed to walk, forgiving people of their sin, and softening hard hearts, giving us a taste of what a world without sin will look like, giving us a taste of heaven. And we see the greatest act of mercy in the history of the world when Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. He takes on the plague of our sin and shame and he receives the wrath that our sins deserve. And we, we get this gift of his perfect righteousness. We receive God's mercy and grace. And see, on the cross, the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. He is undone for us so that we 
can be made new so that we can be recreated. As 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the, me- the message of reconciliation to us. See, when we, when we even think about God's wrath and we feel the weight of that, Yet when we taste the the goodness of his mercy that we receive through Christ, I think that that changes us. It stirs up inside of us. It, It gives us grateful hearts. It softens the hardest heart. And the beautiful thing is that we, through that recreating, through us being a new creation, we are invited to be ambassadors of recreating, of reconciliation. And I think when we understand God's, God's mercy for us in Christ, it shapes the way we live our lives. It changes the way we love and care for our neighbors, how we love and care for our kids, how we steward and spend our money, how we do our jobs. We get to move into our city and be stewards of reconciliation. And so I want to ask this question, how can we be stewards of the mercy that we've received? I got to taste a little bit of this in our, um, we have meetings once a month with the Cotswold Care Team, and one of the things Gordon wanted to do, instead of us just jumping in and talking about business, wanted to go, go around the table and dignify everyone in that room. And I get choked up thinking about that because I think so oftentimes we're just busy head down, plowing through life. And it was this beautiful moment of us slowing down and getting to remind each other what is true, the way that God has recreated us the way that he has gifted us. And that's the very thing we get to do in light of his mercy for us. I want to end this sermon by um, a psalm that um, David wrote in reflection on God rescuing and saving his people. It comes from Psalm 95. And he says, come, let's shout joyfully to the Lord, shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let me pray. Father, thank you for...
the gift of this morning and thanks for the chance for us to come and be reminded of who you are, your power, your might, even your wrath. Thank you for your mercy and grace that you lavish on us through your son. I pray that that would change our hearts. I pray that it would soften us. I pray that you would help us um, to, to feel and know um, your goodness. I pray that um, we would believe that in your son we are a new creation and would you help us and guide us in what it looks like to be stewards of your reconciliation. And Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would overwhelm us with your goodness. We pray this in your name. Amen.